0: This is a DRPG exclusive with Luke Bartlett. Bartlett. Hello and welcome. I am indeed Luke Bartlett and you are listening to a DRPG podcast. In this special episode, we sit down with the one, the only Dale Parmenter CEO to celebrate the company's 42nd birthday. We talk the good times, the tough times, creatively leading the business and being fearless Something, Dale says, he's had in him since the start. Thanks for joining. I really hope you enjoy this one. Firstly, Dale, I always like to start my interviews with a bit of an icebreaker question. And uh, I'm very glad you're wearing your white shirt because it is about your white shirt. The white shirt is particularly synonymous with kind of your personal brand, I feel, and (laughs) I feel a lot of others feel that as well. And um, a lot of CEOs tend to wear a kind of uniform in a way. And uh, I've read up about this and it's to eliminate choice. So they have more room for choice later on in the day, perhaps more important choices that they deem more important. Is this the case with you? Do you consciously do uh, this?
1: I've never really thought about it, to be honest. Um, I like a white shirt. I think it's just clean, neutral. People less judge your fashion when you do a plain a plain color rather than pattern color. So. Yeah, it's, it, I don't really think about it, but it's just something I prefer, I think, yeah.
0: It's up there with, you know, of course, we had Zuckerberg, who wears his grey t-shirts, Steve Jobs famously wore his turtlenecks and his New Balance shoes. Do you see yourself in the same lot as those kind of CEOs? You know, the Zuckerbergs that, that Elon Musk's?
1: No, not really. I mean, yes, in name, CEO, absolutely, but clearly huge organisations different organizations but no I, I don't really see myself there i mean they're massive billionaire people but i see myself absolutely as a, as a leader of of people uh, and whether you employ two people or thousands of people the principles are very much the same so what we do is similar uh, the way we do it is probably a little bit different
0: there's a similarity in the way that the company started, of course, from a garden shed, I believe. Yeah. So yeah. there's this thing about the small space. So of course, Facebook started from a, you know, a college room. And you had, of course, um, Apple, I believe, started from a garage as well. Yeah, it was a garage. Yeah. What is it about the small space?
1: I think it's it's that entrepreneurial spirit. That's where it kicks in of you're gonna have a go. And in those early days. Risk taking is 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 a given. You're going to take risks because there's not much to lose. You haven't got much. You've got a garden shed and 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 the same as a lot of those people you, you mentioned. I was living at home with parents, so no costs at all. Uh, so it's a have a go uh, attitude, which I think is so important. And I would say to you know any young person who's thinking of setting out. Don't get too hung up on business plans and and strategies and everybody that thinks that what business is about. It's just get in there and start doing stuff. And that's the most important thing. And so a lot of businesses all started in that shed at the bottom of the garden principle, yeah.
0: They just have a go sort of mentality.
1: Ab- absolutely, and if, if you fail, well, we'll learn from that and we'll try something else. Uh, and there will be lots and lots of failures. And, and I think people get a little bit confused that everything's gotta be perfect. And it, everything won't be perfect.
0: So we're of course here today to celebrate the fact that we're coming up to the 42nd birthday of this company. What a you know tremendous achievement! Over those years, how have you kept that small space mentality of just give it a go, just have a go?
1: Yeah, it's difficult because you start to employ people, and of course they they get very, I suppose, worried or sensitive. If they screw up, then you know it's it's it, their heads are all blocks on the line, and The problem with a lot of businesses as they grow bigger they start to get processes they start to get systems in place and that risk element starts to get watered down and that have a go spirit and of course we can't run the business like it was in the shed in the bottom of the garden because it would just be absolutely not a chaos um, because things are just changing on an hourly basis but it's it's how do you balance that between still maintaining some of that entrepreneurial spirit and that chaotic of the business with now having to have systems and processes in place. And quite a lot of people struggle with that. And that's probably why they don't set up their own business because they they haven't got that mentality and that's fine. Not everybody can run a business else we would have complete and utter chaos. Uh, You know, you need people who are actually gonna do the work. Um, So it's a balance of, of trying to overlook the business and say, no, let's just keep having a go let's take a few risks still let's have that spirit of pioneering spirit and innovation else it just get stuck into glue uh, and you know i've seen it a few times with their own business where that happens i think we've got a little bit of that at the moment uh, and it just seems hard work so people want excitement even if they you know they're not an entrepreneur they still want a bit of excitement and challenge and that's what we've got to keep introducing into the business
0: at what point then did you realize the shed was no longer an option to stay? you know you couldn't stay there
1: yeah well until we, i run out of space in my parents garden to build any more onto the shed you know in those early days we we would do like we do today we have client meetings we have presentations when i look back i think this was ridiculous this was a shed literally at the bottom of the garden and we bring in corporate clients in to have meetings. And And I remember one time we, we put a marquee up on the side of the shed because we didn't have enough space for the catering. My mom did the sandwiches and stuff. We didn't even have a toilet in the shed. So, you know, clients had to go into the house to go to the toilet. We eventually did put a toilet in uh, and, and built onto the shed and, and had a, it was a brick building in the end, but it just, like, wasn't big enough. We got three or four people there, all getting in each other's way. There was what I grandly called a studio, which was probably the size of, of the Red Room uh, now. And so it was like, we this is ridiculous, we're gonna have to move out. It was even rated as a business as well, which was a bit weird, but because you know, running a business at home wasn't the big thing then. Um, but so, yeah, it, it had its own rates.
0: Did that feel like a well-kept secret then? Because, you know, you're like, we're running this from a shed. This is. Uh- oh, yeah. I mean,
1: anybody run a business from home then, it wasn't like it is today. Like loads of people do it. And it's a big accepted thing. It was almost like undercover. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and you've got people turning up and clients turning up, suppliers turning up. Um, and you know, even like we do today, voiceover artists and some quite famous people, you know, rocked up and, and it, it was exciting, but also felt it's still a shed at the bottom of the garden. Yeah. So it wasn't quite, it would probably be more cool today than it was then. Yeah. It wasn't cool then. <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: you, you mentioned their Risk and I was going to come on to Risk. Um, I actually took a risk myself and you'll, you'll I think you'll laugh at this. Uh, I had some savings at the start of lockdown to, to travel, uh, yeah. well, before lockdown. Then lockdown happened. I spent all my savings on a shed, <laughs> shed studio in my parents' garden. Did the same thing, taught myself how to podcast in that shed. And I'd still call it a studio. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, someone very wise once told me that creativity is actually risk dressed up in pretty clothes. Do you agree with that statement?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think to be creative, you have to push the boundaries. Pushing the boundaries means taking a risk. You don't know whether it's going to work. And I always, Callum says it quite often, and it makes me laugh with clients saying, we want to do something new and exciting, but show me some case studies of what you've done before. Think, well, how can we? Because if it's new and exciting, there is no case studies, there are no case studies. Um, So creativity absolutely is all about taking a risk. You don't really know whether it's going to work. You know, in your heart of heart, you're passionate about it. And, and you can see with the creatives here, this will work, this is gonna be brilliant. I don't really know whether it is, it, 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 but it starts to become a vision and in your head and you're determined to push it through. And you get loads of people who say, oh, that's rubbish, oh, we tried that years ago and that never worked. Well, maybe it was the wrong time years ago. So creativity absolutely is a risk um, to go forward. And we've been fortunate enough to have some great clients, certainly in the early days, who were prepared to also take the risk.
0: How do you know where that line is, you know, To not cross where the risk is perhaps too big,
1: yeah. I think, I think, certainly these days now, knowing you know, 400 plus people, families supporting mortgages to pay, everything else, that we have to be more careful in terms of taking that risk, which sometimes does hold us back um, and holds any business over a certain size back. I think you know. Yourself when you're, you're looking at a project and you're looking at a client, what the client wants to achieve, and you have this brilliant idea we're going to do X, Y, Z, and then you really have to stand back and think, hey, am I prepared to really put my head on the on the line with this? Because, you know, okay, what's the worst can happen? Client won't pay, um, and that's not such a massive deal to be honest. But sometimes the risk is too much and you think we're taking it too far. And uh, But then other times, and I've had it in the past where I've been passionate about something and you keep pushing and pushing and pushing the client and then it still goes wrong. Okay.
0: <laughs> What's one time that it has gone wrong?
1: The biggest time, and I've told the story a few times, was we were um, one of our biggest clients and then our biggest client would be like, spend a hundred grand a year and this is, 20 odd years ago and this client was pushing the boundaries and we were working with them on various things and they did a big annual conference and always wanted a name or a big theme and we'd gone from when we first started working from them in a sort of typical hotel conference room fairly bog standard stage set and we'd pushed them a little bit more so what about if we did this what about if we themed it what about if we brought in you know a, a name to present it and we'd Done a couple and it was really successful. And then we said, let's go a bit further into a film theme. And they wanted it around the sort of Bournemouth area, sort of North London. And I said, let's go to Elstree Studios, um, where, uh, you know, Star Wars were made and Indiana Jones um, will we'll take over one of the studios with absolutely no idea what I was going to do. Um, at that time, I was producing the show, wrote the show, did all the creative on the show making all the videos, doing all the graphics, and the graphics were slides, 35mm slides. So, it it, and their client was a fairly chaotic client as well. So we got all the material, I was making the videos, it was all going to be a big Star Wars opening across three screens, and bear in mind, none of the technology we've got today existed. So I was in the edit suite till about four in the morning, the day before, the, or the night, or the day of the build. Then I drove down overnight, met with the guys, absolutely shattered about an hour's sleep. Then we rock up at Elstree Studios. I remember the, the security guard saying, um, there's the keys, it's over there. I was expecting some sort of, you know, they're gonna introduce us, show us the place. It was like, it's yours. So we opened the door to this vast space. And it was the studio that I think they did the, um, the Indiana Jones one, where they we went all through the, 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 the tunnels on the uh, uh, in the basket thing. And um, we started to unload, and it just went wrong from day one, or from hour one. Nothing came together, and we were supposed to be rehearsing at four in the afternoon. We were nowhere near ready, and it just went from bad to worse. And at the time, we'd also offered to do the catering, got all the videos, and and in the end, the show came together. But it was a, a pivotal time when I said, I never want to do another event again. It was a nightmare. We completely bit off part in which we were, you know, technically it was not equipped to do what we wanted to do. All the ideas were brilliant. So, from a creative point of view, this will be a brilliant show. But the technical support, I mean, even the sound system at one point was picking up the local taxi company. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> so, that's how. And we blew up, at the end, the finale, the client wanted balloons. So we blew up all these balloons. We blew them up too big. And this thing had got a 32-foot high ceiling. They all went up. They were up in the top, ready to drop at the end. And, of course, all the heat was going up there. So these balloons were expanding more and more. So halfway through the presentation, they started to go bang. (laughs) Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, we threw everything at it. We had lasers and dry ice and stage movements and this projection, which worked the only way to synchronize the projection was for me to stack three video machines one on top of the other and then with my fingers just press the three buttons together
0: i think there's a there's a, uh, a fearlessness there to, to persevere through something like that and i wanted to come on to this this idea of fearlessness because In your, uh, I suppose, personal life, your, you know, your passions have been everything from gardening to used to be a DJ at one point, which is amazing. And I want to talk to you more about that at some point. But, um, you know, and rowing, of course, as well, uh, I believe where, you know, it really started. There's a lot of different things you've sort of fearlessly, you know, chased, I suppose, and gone after how do you maintain that over 42 years how do you maintain that fearlessness
1: uh difficult uh, it's, it's it's i suppose it's something that you know I, I when i started out part of my dna i suppose and it just it just feels normal i think if i'd started later i mean i started like what, 12 13 doing the whole gardening and then the rowing if i'd If I'd have said in the mid 20s, then I will start doing some of this stuff. I think by the time you get there, your risk aversity starts to kick in a little bit, and maybe a little bit more fearful. But when you start out, and I was supported massively by my parents at that time to have a go. My mother particularly was; she she was fairly fearless, um, and she was like, "I'll just do it." Just. And of course, there was always a safety net there. Of if it goes wrong, well, that's fine. We'll just learn from it and move on so it's just become part of the way i am Uh, and and it's it becomes behavioral and habit forming going forward so not to say i'm not fearless of stuff and as you get older you you that does start to kick in a little bit more and you've got more responsibility and you know you you you, when you do screw up then there's bigger consequences when you get older
0: (laughs) on the rowing i read that your parents you were at one particular race i believe your parents said oh it's you know it doesn't it doesn't matter where you come it's you know sort of taking part that counts yeah. and and you you were like no i want to win tell me about that competitiveness
1: that was uh, yeah that was burton regatta i was 14 um and single skulls so i was on my own and uh we had to get there oh, some ungodly hour um all the adults races they had probably an average of about two or three races in the day so you start with the heats, semi-final into the final this was a really popular it was a new thing for under 14s to to be rowing competitively so loads of kids had entered um so my first race was something like eight o'clock in the morning we got to Burton and Burton regatta I don't know where it still is but you used to have a great big show attached to it and uh funfair and all sorts of other stuff going on so yeah, as we pulled up, my dad was my dad was always the pessimist. My mum was the optimist. My dad said to me, "Oh, don't worry." As we pulled onto the car park, Look, if if you lose, there's a big fun fair here. And the only thing I could think about that day was, I'm not going on that effing fun fair. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so that won't be happening. And um, and that gave me the determination, of whether that sort that sort of you know anything's possible sort of. Attitude was quite quite early on with me. Is it almost? I'll show you, and uh, and uh, I'm going to win today. So,
0: creatively leading the business, many leaders are sort of credited with being innovative. And I spoke with a few people who say that's you know the the, the grown up word for creativity. Essentially, yeah, yeah. can the two coexist? Do they do they coexist? Yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, they, they, you could argue they're one and the same. But I think, and also I think people get a little bit confused about what creativity actually is. It's not just about you know, coming up with fantastic designs and brilliant artwork that, that the team here do. You can be creative in anything you do, you know, whether that's working in accounts or IT, we should think creatively and thus innovatively all the time. And that is something sometimes I get frustrated about that we play it safe. And of course, what you want is a mixture of both, that we play it safe, we, we, we come up with some great ideas that we may run with for two or three years. And that's great, they're the off the shelf ideas that work and we can we can make lots of money out of those, but constantly we should also be thinking, well, what is the next big thing? What's the next thing that is going to be innovative, bespoke, unique, that then will become the next thing that we, we sell for the next three or four years? Um, and, and so we should be coexisting between off the shelf, that works. We know it works. It's a safe option. But where are we pushing the boundaries as well of creativity? And not just in the creative department. So everybody.
0: always striving
1: for that yeah, sort yeah, of you know, yeah. creativity.
0: I've been reading a book at the minute called Stolen Focus. Now, this looks at our sort of lack of attention in the digital age and, and, and you know seemingly lower and lower sort of expectations from yeah. things. And one of the ideas it talks about is this idea of the um, switch cost effect. So I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's basically, if we're having a conversation now and I take my phone out and look at my phone, it's the time it takes to get back into the conversation, full attention. These are very much, they feel like modern problems. What do you believe are some of the creative ways we can combat this? um, I think,
1: I mean, there's also a saying of being in the room um, and even through the the two years of lots of lots of virtual, it'd still be in the room. We've got lots of distractions, and and the problem with distractions is then, I think it can eat away at creativity because we we're trying to do too many things at once. And you probably know yourself, you sit down to write something and you're getting distracted or you're getting bogged down, and you, your head's just full of fuzz, and and you don't you really just can't do it. And how frustrating it gets. It, it actually gets worse. You walk away, go and take a break, or you know, go to the pub or whatever, and all of a sudden, all this wealth of ideas appear. And I think people don't make the connection if you empty your mind and take away the distractions, you know, turn the phone off, shut the laptop, just have some thinking time of nothing, go for a walk, whatever it is, play sport, all of a sudden, those ideas will start to, to come through. And not necessarily the ideas, you know, like like the, the, the big creative ideas we, ha- we have here. It could be, you know, how to reorganise the warehouse or how, to, how we can construct something or do a better way of working from a venue point of view. So you have to make time to clear your head.
0: As a CEO, do you feel a level of responsibility to have an answer for these modern problems? Or do you think there's no such thing as a modern problem? That there's just like these pre-existing problems packaged up a little bit differently? Yeah,
1: I mean, everything comes in cycles. Um, and when you get to my age, you start to see the cycles coming around again. And think, oh, here we go again. Um, we're in this cycle now. So, you know, when it comes to things like recessions, whatever, I've been through three, four. So you start to think, Everything that's saying, it's "Oh, this is new. This is new. never happened again." Well, it has actually, and this is the way you deal with it. Now, I'm not saying that's the right way, but I think with modern problems, um, some will be absolutely attributed to be maybe the latest tech, and yeah, they're, they're new. Never had to deal with those again. But a lot of the behavioural problems of people are the same. The same as they were probably 100 years ago, 200 years ago. It's just that what changes actually, which is very poignant to air industry, is comms. The way we communicate changes. Thus that changes the attitude and the behaviors and the way we have to deal with things. So, so if you have, go back to say the 50s, if nothing had changed from a technology point of view or a comms point of view from the 50s to today, would people have changed would the way we we deal with things change and i would suspect not nothing more would have moved on if technology hadn't moved on and particularly the way we communicate so the internet television even you know, radio if we're still back there and if you look at back to the future and that's a great example of that you know that that changing technology what would have happened to people and So I think nothing would have changed too too much. How do you think the predictable nature of humans then and how
0: we react to stuff plays into sort of, is is that on your mind when you're trying to run a
1: company? Yeah, it is because now I'm dealing with um, a very diverse group of people um, who have been brought up in different timelines who expect different things. So, and that's a big problem of our world of comms. How do we communicate? across this whole spectrum of, of people that have been used to different ways of communicating, different attitudes, different behaviors. But at the end of the day, people are people. And and I think what we've seen in the last two years is a lot of people saying, at the, particularly the beginning of the pandemic, this is brilliant, we can all communicate, we don't need to travel anymore, we can do this. Then watch as things have come, started to come back, the live events, people wanting interaction, wanted to collaborate, that there was a reason why we were where we were in 2019. That was a default and we are, to a degree, defaulting back to it. And you you see the last weekend with the whole Jubilee and people out on the streets and everything else. I think we are people and people, people, and we want to be with people. So the whole concept of, oh, we can do everything online now, I'm so sure that's the right thing um, and what people actually want. I think there's an absolute need for it. But um, so when you look back in terms of people's attitudes, behaviours, problems, they're just regurgitated, but in just a slightly different way.
0: You're right, because I was at an event not too long ago and I was looking around thinking... It's just, it's just gone back, like you know, and, and it, the whole thing feels a little bit like a fever dream in a way, you know. It's yeah. like, did that really happen? It was.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, we, we've all got fairly short members to a degree, and it'll be, we'll be on to the next disaster, I'm sure, coming up forwards. But you look at the pubs, you know, I go to London now quite a lot, and it's actually busier now than than it seemed to be then. Uh, I think, who would have known? Anything's just happened the last two years. So, but yeah, I think. People are people and uh, and the, the, the way we deal with people. That's why if you look at the way our first and foremost point of contact and communication across our business is the team meeting. And when we've gone out and asked the team about that, that always comes out as number one, we want the team meeting. And if you look at the digital option of the hub, it's considerably lower down the scale in terms of its engagement level. Now, that may be something's wrong with the content um so we, we need to look at that but people want to be with people
0: the team meeting you mentioned there um i remember when i first arrived here and my first team meeting i was thinking wow this is amazing you know and as a ceo you're very visible and you know very accessible and you know you you mix with the people basically was that always something you set out to do set out to be like- yeah
1: and i suppose you know i've, I've had no formal training whatsoever and and so i made it up as i went along really um i suppose i dealt with some brilliant companies in the early days who became my mentors so i was observing those people of you know what do i do next what how do i run a company so what became very obvious very quickly was people are at the heart of any business any organization therefore You have to be, as a leader, you have to be visible to them and you have to be able to communicate effectively uh, most of the time with them uh, and understand them and take an interest and, you know, try and be there for the team because without the team, there is no company. And I've seen some incredibly fantastic examples of that and some really poor examples as well, um, where, you know, CEOs can don't. Get that at all? They don't see why they need to communicate, why they need to even interact with the people. Yeah. Um. Because they see the people as a an asset, which sounds great, but they also see the machines in their factories as an asset.
0: Yeah. Did you always have those visions of how big this would get? Because I read that you always knew you wanted to sort of be a CEO and, and have a business. Yeah, yeah. Did you, you know, envision it as big as it is today?
1: No, and and I get that question asked a lot. And I can't actually remember what I thought at the time. Um, It was always just on to the next thing. And so I've never really had this massive plan of looking forward way into the future and all this is what the vision will be. So I never really thought about that. Um, It was... And I suppose when I look at it now, and you know, I did an induction yesterday with ten new people, and which was great to meet them and bring them in and show them around. I still, when I look around the business, and particularly on those show rounds with with new new team members, think, wow, this is this is quite big, isn't it? Uh, you know, and 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 even when I go to industry events, and I was at in Frankfurt last week with with IMAX. To People just to come and say hello, and I've got no idea who these people are because they know me, but I don't know them. And it starts to think, well, this is a bit scary in one place, but it's also quite nice as well. Do you ever get used to that? No, not really. No. Um, and I think it would be a bad thing if you do, because then you get, um, I'd get um, a bit more sort of, I don't know, uh, complacent. Yeah. Yeah.
0: With this industry, I think, unfortunately, there is a lot of sort of egos floating around and, and, you know, it's just the unfortunate nature of the business. How do you keep your own sort of ego in check and and sort of, you know, regulate that, so Um, to speak?
1: Yeah. Um, I I think creating, hopefully, a fairly open and honest organisation, I get told (laughs) by the team uh, and particularly my wife as well, Alex will will, will definitely tell me if I'm going over the top with something. Uh, And, you know, I can be quite introverted at times. Um, And it depends on, it can depend on the mood, but depend on the situation, I can be quite shy. I used to turn up at events, um, big industry events, where I knew I wouldn't know anybody. And I would either turn up late, so at the end of the drinks reception, because then that is the worst time for me. Um, or I would, if I arrive early, because you know, you think, oh, the taxi will be late, and everything else, of course the taxi's on time, everything's gone through, and you're, oh, God, I'm early now. Um, so you just neck like three glasses of champagne. And, <laughs> and, then, um, and, and I still now get a bit daunted going into big situations. Lots of people are, will I know anybody? How do you start a conversation? Um, and it depends, if I see, then start to see people I know then it will it will change so yeah it's um i suppose a bit bit complicated personality really i can be the introvert but i can also be the extrovert as well
0: play both sides i like it
1: yeah yeah and it's it's if if it's sort of i i'm in control and let's say it's an event we're doing here then i can be the extrovert because it's you know take the conference whether it's the summer or the Christmas conference, I'm more than happy to be the stupid one um, doing that, but could I do that at somebody else's event? I'm not so sure. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. You sound quite similar. <laughs> yeah. okay. um, I wanted to end on that. So just two, two more questions, really. 42 years, incredible achievement. What's one specific highlight for you over those 42 years? Oh, putting you on the spot
1: now. You are putting me on the spot. I think one where I, I, which was quite a shock to me, got in the same year, Personality of the Year, and also was presented with a fellowship at the House of Lords. I didn't expect that one little bit. That that didn't um, occur to me. Others, I think, the celebrations that we've done. Unfortunately, we couldn't do the 40th, but the big celebrations, the um, the 35th, probably were being the last one we did, was fantastic when. The old van appeared, uh, although I know it wasn't the real old van because that sunk into the ground eventually and (laughs) rotted away. But, uh, you know, there's just loads of those moments. And and I think it's where I've seen the team achieve things, like the Queen's Award that we've just done. No, that, we said, well, that's your award. Well, it's not really. I I couldn't do that on my own. Couldn't do that without the team. So it's where the team achieve things and we see that success. And I get that feedback, particularly from clients, of "Wow, what a fantastic team!" Then that for me is brilliant. I mean, that's 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 great accolade.
0: Final final question. It's not really a question. I'm going to bring something up. It's, uh, I've heard a funny story uh, yeah. about yourself, Dale. Um, there was a roundtable event. I believe you might have fallen through the roof or almost fallen
1: through the roof. Yeah, it was more than once as well. <laughs> it was the old building. Uh, which 252, which is behind where we are now. Uh, and uh, we'd done a lot of work on that building, and we got two studios in there, and we, 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 as we do here, we bring in local organisations for tours and everything else. And this evening, uh, we'd brought in yeah, the other local round table for a, for a tour. And behind the, the main edit suite, there was a service corridor and in that service corridor, you could go behind and, and you could get to the back of the edit suites, which actually was better than what we've got today because, you know, you've got to climb underneath the edit suites. And you could get to all the kit, which is great. So um, something wasn't working. And I think what we'd done is something in the studio and that it was going to be played back in the then viewing room. And the connection just wasn't happening. So I ran upstairs and um, into the service corridor because I, I, I know what this is. Uh, there was a connection problem. What I didn't know is earlier in the day, some of the team had taken up some of the floorboards in the service corridor to do some maintenance to feed cables through behind. And instead of putting the ports ca- back down, they left them up and I didn't bother to put the light on. So I just run into the service corridor and um, went straight through the floorboards. <laughs> Into the viewing room where it's <laughs> all, so, and and all they got was my two legs sticking out. Yeah. How
0: did you play that one off?
1: <laughs> um, it was a very much a, a, a Dellboy moment. That yes. was. It was. It was a bit like the chandelier dropping. Um, no, just calm, collected, made the connection and went back down as if nothing had happened. But of course, it took the pee out of me massively.
0: Only <laughs> because you mentioned Dellboy, I've heard there is also a Dellboy moment where you. Sort of emulated the the, the it, it, it had the same Del Boy moment where he fell through the bar.
1: Let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that right? That was a bit. That was on the one of the early uh, drip shows. Um, it was Gemma Oldfield actually. She, she she said, "Oh, you should do the going through the bar one." And and I thought, oh, okay, we'll try it out. So behind the bar, if you remember the virtual drinks, it was the bar in Studio Two. There was loads and loads of cushions. <laughs> And it actually worked better in rehearsal because I just didn't think about it and just did it. Um, and then when, of course, it got to it, I was waiting for the cue and all the rest of it. And Richard was singing something dreadful. Um, <laughs> so I hesitated a little bit on, on when we actually did it for real. Um, but yeah, I thought, well, you know, rise to the challenge. Somebody's challenged me to do it, so I'll do it.
0: Brilliant. Dale, thank you so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. Pleasure. an episode what a guest what an honor it was to sit down with the man behind it all thanks out again of course to dale for his time and a massive happy birthday to drpg it's an incredible story and it only took us 42 years to tell it for more like this subscribe on spotify or apple podcasts among many other popular outlets or if you have a question or any feedback we'd love to hear from you so drop us a line at marketing at drpgroup.com Thanks, as always, for joining me. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you in the next one.